Welcome to The Natural High, which is a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week, I get to satisfy a long-term ambition to speak to Rachel Bowditch. After studying and participating in the greatest event on earth for over 20 years, Rachel is uniquely placed to give insights into Burning Man. Whether you've never been before or you're a lifelong participant, there's so much to unravel in this fascinating interview. You can contact Rachel at vesselproject.org or rachelbowditch.com and all those references are in my show notes at thenaturalhighclub.com forward slash burning man. So sit back and enjoy the show. The Natural High I don't think I've interviewed a professor before, so please excuse my general ignorance in advance. No worries. And, and you are such an interesting person and such a learned person. It's almost impossible to know where to start in order to get the most out of my time with you. I did want to focus with you on Burning Man, but it would be remiss of me not to talk a little bit about your incredibly colourful and interesting career as well, because I believe that you're the assistant professor at Arizona State University in the School of Theatre and Film. Would that be accurate? Uh, uh, the School of Film, Dance and Theatre. Okay. So what, yeah. what does it entail, your role there? And yeah, and how has it been affected by the current virus? Well, I've been there for 14 years, hmm. um, and I actually just found out last week that I was promoted to full professor. Congratulations. Uh, it's a big step, because you go through the tenure process, which is a six-year, seven-year process, and then you um, go through another process to go to full, um, and so I went through that whole process. I submitted all my materials in May, and I just found out a week ago, uh, but my role there has evolved a lot. Because mm. uh, I started out, I came, was, I came from New York City out of the PhD program at NYU, mm-hmm. and I was hired to direct on their main stage um, as well as to do performance studies classes. Um, and then my first show that I directed there, Machinal, was this very elaborate uh, production with uh, nine surveillance cameras and shifting screens and surfaces and. Um, it was a huge success, and the director of the school at the time, it was also very physical. Um, the director at the time afterwards came to me and said, how did you get those young actors to do that? Like, yeah. I have never seen our actors do that before. Uh, and I said, well, it's a combination of my training. Um, and she said, could you teach a course in that? Uh, what would you call it? And I said, well, I would call it devising. Um, and that sort of launched the beginning of our devising program at ASU. And then I took over the MFA in performance program where I got to shape the whole curriculum. Um, and How then, would you describe devising succinctly? Does it involve a lot of improvisation and creativity? That's what it sounds yeah, like to me. It, 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 it does. Um, so the difference between devising and a scripted play is a playwright, the scripted play, a playwright goes into a room at a computer or typewriter and sits down and and imagines the play in their mind. And it's sort of a singular artistic vision. It, that goes through a series of workshops and then play, you know, the the actors read it. And then it's given to a director who then stages it with actors, but it's a single voice from the playwright. Um, Devising is much more collaborative. Um, So the devising process could begin with a single idea it could begin with a concept. So 
Um, and there's different, many different ways to structure the how the collaboration is works. But for example, um, I did a piece about called Ophelia Project, which is also on my website, because I was really interested in the character of Ophelia from Hamlet, how she's a, a crazy woman who goes, you know, a beautiful woman goes crazy, kills herself, and that becomes sort of a trope with women. Uh, you know, a lot of successful women have taken their own lives, and so I really wanted to investigate that. And then we went off and we read everything about Anne Sexton, Sylvia Plath, Virginia Woolf, and we we cra- we created the script together um, through improvisation, through experimentation. Um, so yeah, and 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 that's a very popular form that is um, taking hold. It's been it's been very popular in England for about twenty years. The U.S. is very slow to catch on, but they're slowly catching on. Has your your work always been within the context of academia, or would you have a, a certain point in your life um, have identified as a theatre director first and foremost, for example? Oh yeah, I mean. Um, I, uh, well, I, I, right after school, uh, uh, college where I went to Skidmore, I moved to Paris for one year to study with Lecoq, who's a, one of the world famous theater director, uh, theater pedagogues. Um, and then I was invited to come to New York to assist direct a show with my, um, professor, Phil Sultanoff, who's a professional director. So I, I went to New York to work with him at the age of 22. Um, and I sort of saw what it took to make your own theater there. Um, and so within six months, I had proposed my own show to a professional theater here, Performing Arts Center, and it got accepted. And so within, so at the age of 23, I was directing my own work in New York City. Fantastic. Um, and then I did that for a number of years, uh, but I realized that I wanted to teach um, at the university level. And... Um, you know, cause I had to do other things on the side. It wasn't sustaining. Right. So mm-hmm. I had to do other, so I would work other jobs during the day so I could, you know, feed my theater habit, habit in the night. And I thought I'm going to be dead by the time I'm 30. If I keep this up working nine to five and then rehearsing <laughs> six to 11 every night for three years, like I can't do that. And I said like, what could I do where I could be doing theater all the time and not sort of have to split my life like that. Um, and I, I thought teaching would be a great university teaching, not high school teaching. So I went back and got my master's degree and my PhD. Um, and while I was in my PhD program, I worked with Richard Schechner, who was my dissertation director. But he's a very famous theater director as well as a famous uh, – he founded the field of performance studies. He um, – he, uh, Within uh, like the first two months of, of knowing him, he invited me to be an actor in his theater company. So I worked with his theater company um, as an actor uh, and, and performed in professional theaters like La Mama uh, in New York City, which is one of the most famous experimental theaters in New York City. I did that, and then I, I finished my PhD, and then I got hired at Arizona State University, where I've been this whole time. And you're um, loving it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's my dream job because I, I basically created my own master's, you know, MFA in performance Amazing. program where I developed the curriculum, you know, with, with the help of colleagues. Um, 
how many people can say they they do their dream job? I mean, it's it's absolutely wonderful. I, I want to um, ask you about Burning Man as well because that's clearly another love in your life, and um, it's something that you've had a long term love affair with. You've written books about it, um, and it's obviously been a real a, a big companion through your life. And it is something <laughs> mystical and amazing. And and so I really want to delve into it. And who better yeah. to speak to about Burning Man than somebody who's almost like a an unofficial biographer, or maybe an official <laughs> biographer, I don't know, but someone who's got an, a, a really deep insights uh, into into the, the movement that is Burning Man. Can you remember the first mm-hmm. time you ever heard about Burning Man? Yes. Um, I actually write about it in my book. Um, so, like I said, I... On the Edge of Utopia? On the Edge of Utopia, a performance and ritual at Burning Man. Available um, in all good bookstores and online. I don't know if it's available in any bookstores, but it's available on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, so I was in Paris right after undergrad, um, and I, I remember distinctly, I was sitting on the river, the banks of the River Seine with my friend uh, Scott Newell, who after graduation had moved back to San Francisco and was uh, going to the San Francisco Art Institute. And I remember the distinct moment, it was like sunset, it sounds so poetic, sunset on the Seine, right? <laughs> He's like, have you heard of Burning Man? And I was like, no, what is it? He's like, oh my God, you would love it. It's art, it's ritual, it's performance, it's it's unbelievable. And it happens out in the desert, you should go. He said, I'm building a huge installation to bring out there this year. Um, and I was like, oh, okay. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. I you know, didn't think much of it, but I thought, okay. Um, and then I got back to the States and my best friend had moved out to San Francisco and she was like, I just went to Burning Man. Oh my God. It's incredible. You're going to, this was about 98. Okay. You would lose your mind if you went there. It's so incredible. And then my other best friend, Leah also went and was like, Oh, and she went away with a circus group and she said it was just amazing. So I thought, I really have to check this out. This sounds like a, <laughs> something fun. But I was where, I was living in New York City. I had no money at all. I couldn't just, it just was too cost prohibitive. It wasn't mm. even an option for me. Um, and then I started dating. Sorry, just uh, very quickly. Was it, was it also difficult to attend at that point? Because it is really difficult to get tickets by and large these days, isn't it? No, no, it wasn't hard then. Okay. Um, no, um, so... Then I started dating this guy who's actually a world-famous DJ, um, sort of cultural icon. We were having dinner, and I said, I've always wanted to go to Burning Man. He's like, let's go. And I was like, yeah, I, I would love to go. He's, we, I, I was like, well, I can't. He's like, well, why not? And I said, because I, I, I don't have the money to. He's like, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. We'll go. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, so he got his his agent, like bought his tickets and he got the flights. And so we went out there and we met two of his friends in San Francisco. Um, and we drove through the night. And um, I remember we got to the gates of Black Rock City at like 5 a.m. and we drove to our camp. It was totally pitch black. And I just remember the first sunrise on the playa. We had just arrived and it was the most breathtaking thing. It's like the whole city just revealed to us. Um, but that, but this was in 2001 and I just went as a participant. Um, 
uh, but it was interesting because he he was very critical of the event. He um, had he been before. He had been before, uh, and he was actually going there to DJ several of the some of the big camps. Mm-hmm. Nothing like the camps are now, like Zara. I mean, these were camps that were at the time huge, but compared to what there's now, like tiny. Um, so he had like four or five nights that he was spinning in different places. Um, so we went, uh, but he was very critical of the event and sort of like the whole time, because he's also a sort of theorist scholar kind of meta narrative the whole time. And so I, I couldn't quite have the experience of like being fully immersed in the event. I was sort of like half in half out. Cause it was sort of this continual narrative of what was going on. Right. Um, I mean, I had fun, but it was sort of not the sort of like, Ooh, I'm getting, I'm being transformed by burning man. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got back to New York city on Sunday night and Tuesday, nine 11 happened. Wow. And um, I remember that sitting earlier in the week, you know, with dust masks on, like those N95 masks, yeah. uh, in a dust storm, you know, covered in white, and, you know, drinking faux, you know, drinking cocktails on a faux lawn and the, absurd of, the absurdity of it all. And then to three days later to be in New York City with, white dust covering everybody. And it just was like this juxtaposition of like, Oh my God, what, where were we? We were so oblivious to what was about to happen and it just shattered everything. Um, so then, then I decided to go to grad school like two years later and I was taking a course, um, on ritual play and festival, ritual play and performance. Um, and so, I, I thought of a moment that I had seen at Burning Man of a moment where the lamplighters were lighting the city in this sort of ritualistic procession. And all of a sudden, um, I heard this like, uns, 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 and all <laughs> 300 pink furry bunnies started coming towards the white, the white procession of the lamplighters. And it was this intersection of sort of the sublime, the ritualesque, the sacred and the the profane and and sort of the absurd and sort of these two processions intersecting like pink and white they kind of had this moment of convergence and then they went their separate ways um, so I, I I wrote about this um, and my direct, my professor Richard Schechner had never heard of Burning Man and he said oh my God this is so fascinating you have to write a dissertation about this. Um, no one has done a performance studies analysis of this event. And, and can I just ask, was it in terms of its profile in 2001, how different was the profile then to now? Oh, completely different. Okay. One, like 10% or something like that? The, um, in 2001, it was still pretty much counterculture. Um, if, very, if you mentioned Burning Man, very few people would know about it. Um, And if they did, they would just say, Oh, it's a big drug sex festival. Mm -hmm. Um, There was no, so when I started um, writing about it, there was one other dissertation out about it and no books were published. Not even one book was published. It seems unfathomable, doesn't it? Now. Yeah. Um, there, Oh, there may have been one coffee table book. That was like a German 
thing. Um, so I started to write my dissertation and actually in the first six months that I started writing or researching, Brian Doherty came out with the first book on Burning Man called This is Burning Man. He did all of the very, very deep work of the 86 to basically 98. Like he did all of the early years with John Law and all of the the interworkings, interpersonal things behind the event. And was so, he a participant through those years? Yeah. Um, okay, you'd and, have to be, wouldn't you, in order to do a, yeah. a really substantial reader yeah. on Burning Man. So, so I was so happy he wrote that because I could pick and choose moments of that for my introduction. So I didn't have to do that work because I wasn't actually interested in doing the history of Burning Man. Uh, I wanted to talk about ritual and performance at Burning Man. I needed to give a context. So I was so happy when he wrote that book because the first book really had to do what he did. Um, and then a second book came out called Afterburn, which is a series of essays. And then mine was the third book to come out. And now when I went to Scott and I went to the um, Burning Man uh, headquarters last year and they have a whole Burning Man library. My book is on the shelf, but now there's like 200. Fantastic. Um, you know, articles and different things or things that mention Burning Man. But you, when I. Go sorry. On, please. No, please. No, no, when I, when I first started, I remember I knew um, one fire performer, because I knew I wanted to focus on fire and fire performance, and so I, I knew one fire performer from New York City, and I my first interview with her, she was like, Burning Man doesn't want to be studied. Why would you want to study Burning Man? Hmm. And I was like, oh, good, this is going to be hard. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if no one wants to talk about it. It's like um, an exclusive utopia, you know. People don't want it to change, so why would yeah, they want to expose all of the information about it? And and, and so it was very much like uh, it was not a, the pop, it was not a popular, it, it was not in the mainstream at all. Um, although that being said, a lot of the dot-com billionaires had discovered it, and so sort of Silicon Valley playground. Um, but it wasn't like a huge celebrity hangout like it is now. Um, so my first year of, that I went out as a researcher in 2003 or four, um, I had made, I went out as media, right. And so I got a media pass okay. and I, I had a request to, uh, meet with Larry Harvey, to meet with a bunch of key people and all of my interviews, I didn't get any interviews. So I was like, okay, great. This is going to go really well. Um, what were the challenges in terms of getting interviews? Just uh, finding people, finding coherent people. What was the door? Was the challenge? They just like they they would grant like one or two interviews a week with Larry Harvey. He just didn't want to give that many interviews. Hmm. Um, so my first, so that Monday I went to the media mecca mixer, which was like a little cocktail party for all the people who had signed up as press. Hmm. So I show up at this thing. And I, I'm just like sitting there and I look over and I see someone, uh, my husband at the time was like, isn't that Larry Harvey over there? The guy, the, the, the awkward person standing in the corner with the hat <laughs> talking to nobody. And I was like, oh my goodness, that, I think that's Larry Harvey. So I walked over to him and I said, hi, I'm so nice to meet you. I'm writing my dissertation on Burning Man. He's like, no, no kidding. He's like, yeah, come sit. I spoke to him wow. for like two hours. He was so fascinated that someone wanted to take Burning Man seriously and to write about it and to theorize about it. He was so excited. And then I said, yeah, I wanted a formal interview with you and a number of other people. He was like, okay, 
uh, nurse who was his assistant at the time. He called her over. He's like, get me an interview with her. Um, I, and so I got an interview with him that Wednesday. He's like, who else do you need to talk to? And I, I said, David Best, Crimson Rose, Will Roger, all the people. And he's like, yep, you got it. You got all the interviews. So I had interviews with everyone. Wow. And then from that day on, it was like green card. <laughs> nice. Green The network grew exponentially. Oh, yeah. Fantastic. I must ask you, because, you know, you you never really struck me as like a proper, you know, sort of festival goer, um, sort of, you know, sort of person you're going to find out and about five in the morning off your chops. You're very, (laughs) you're you're a sensible, intelligent, um, studious person. Uh, And and also another thing is when I even just um, referring to festivals there, when I speak to people about Burning Man and I use the word festival, they don't like that term um, in relation to Burning man so what makes it different what makes burning man unique and why have you been so compelled by it over the years yeah um yeah i I, it is it is not a festival like any other festival and it actually uh people do not like to use they don't like to call it the burning man festival um uh i think one of the things that makes it different from any other event anywhere in the world um Oh, it, it, a lot of it has to do with how it was formed, right? It started out with Larry Harvey and Jerry James building a, a man on the beach. 80 people came. It was an invited small group. In San uh, Francisco, right? Yeah, on Baker Beach. And then it was a fun party. Yeah, friends of friends. Next year, it was like, let's do it again. Friends of friends of friends. And it just exponentially grew on Baker Beach in 1990. Uh, it got stopped. Uh, they were now able to build the burn the man. So that's when Michael Michael and the Cacophony Society kind of stepped in and said, hey, we know this place on the playa in the Black Rock Desert. We should do it out there. The first group of 80 people was just mostly artists. Everyone knew each other. It was a group of friends. Um, and what makes it different from like a hippie festival and everyone just like drumming and doing drugs or whatever Um Right from the start, and this Cacophony Society has everything to do with this, there was sort of a surreal Dadaist twist. So uh, could you just go back? Could you explain what a Cacophony Society is? Again, that's just pure naivety on my part. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I can only touch, you know, scratch the tip of the iceberg. It is a, a huge component of Burning Man. Um, and it actually goes back to the Suicide Club. This is in the 70s going into the 80s. Um, it was a group of subversive, artsy, culture jammers who um, would throw these wild events, right? They would um, they were interested in kind of playing with culture, so they would do things like, let's have a Bastille Day dinner party on the Golden Gate Bridge. Everyone wear Bastille Day clothes. Let's have a end-of-the-world party where you have to crawl through a hole in this loft and then you go in there and you have three days where you like pretend that it's the end of the world. (laughs) Um, And Michael Michael, who is um, one of the main people behind Burning Man, actually I would say more formative than Larry Harvey, although Larry Harvey is kind of the front man. Michael Michael is really the, the engineer behind it in my, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, he he's he was he came from cacophony society he's who brought cacophony society to larry 
Um, and he advertised Burning Man for the first time in the Cacophony Society newsletter. Um, and one thing that the Cacophony Society would do, um, would they would have these zone trips. So they would go to some ra- random place and have an adventure and an experience, and they would call it a zone trip. Uh, and so one of their zone trips was to the Black Rock Desert. Um, and they had a ritual where they would uh, draw a line in the sand and they say, when we step over this line, we are somewhere else, like Dorothy stepping into the Wizard of Oz, you know, crossing the line. Um, so right from the start, there was this very playful element. And so Cacophony Society was very into costuming and of subversion. So the very first burn on the playa, the, the flyer read, wear your fanciest ball gowns and tuxedos as we burn the man. Um, so right there, that's not a hippie fest, right? That is like elegance in the desert, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's playing with, with costuming and, and this idea of, of, um, you know, just altering your, your persona. Expression, and, artful expression. Artful, artful expression. And that's yeah. what we're really getting into, aren't we? Because it is so much more than just hedonism, Burning Man, right? Yeah. And then, and then what ended up happening is someone would put a pink flamingo in front of their tent. And so they would call it pink flamingo camp. And uh, someone would put a Christmas tree in front of their camp and say Christmas tree camp. Um, and actually the founding of uh, center camp is really cool. Um, Harley Dubois, who was also one of the six LLC um, members, um, she brought an espresso machine and started just giving out free coffee to people in the mornings. And it became a hit, right? Because everyone's like, oh, go to her tent. She's giving out espresso. So then the we next- should point out, shouldn't we, to, to the yeah. uninitiated that you can't really buy anything at Burning Man. You can buy ice, I believe, and maybe one or two things. It's a gift economy, which is very different than a barter economy. That's a whole other thing we can get into. But So the following year, she brought two espresso machines and then three espresso machines. And so little by little, that became known as center camp. Um, and that became sort of a staple, sort of the central part of the city. So everything, so the thing that's so different from any other event of this scale and this magnitude is that it was completely grassroots at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. They never had corporate sponsorship. Um, and the corporate corporations have tried to throw money at them and they have denied it. They, They have pushed it aside, um, because they don't, it would ruin the event. And so to have something that is all mostly word of mouth, they don't do any form of advertising. All of it is through building social networks and the community builds that city. Right. Um, and it's all participant driven. And I think that the smartest decision and Larry Harvey has said it himself was to ban any kind of vending or selling of any kind at the event. Because early on, uh, like in 97, there were attempts, like people would set like set up little stands where you could buy, you know, yoga, you know, pants or, or you know, just tchotchkes. Um, and they shut those all down um, mm-hmm. because they said, like, that's not the point of this, right? Um so, and that was one of the smartest decisions they ever made. Um, so, so it's evolved and it's continued to evolve and it's all participant driven. Um, and I think that that is the magic and the beauty of it is that people find their community out there. And, 
and then they come back and they're like, I want to do more next time. Um, so there's no other event like it anywhere in the world. I mean, if you watch the fire festival documentary, you'll see what a complete fiasco that was. Because <laughs> Hilarious it, documentary. That is the absolute quintessential opposite, opposite. of Burning Man is what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. They, they, they try to sell the festival. They try to get influencers to buy in and they had no infrastructure, zero. And there's, and, and then it, it failed fabulously. Um, and, and Burning Man is the size and the scale and the scope that it is, is because it is so gradually and incrementally grown through very careful planning. And people think that Burning Man is some free for all. It is the most highly organized, sophisticated <laughs> event on this planet. And it, it is incredible what they have been able to achieve. Why do you think people do invest emotionally so much in Burning Man? Like, it's it's different from any other movement or event I've ever been to because it seems to generate such loyalty amongst its goers and yeah. they, it really becomes part of them in the long term. I've, I've, I've rarely met people who have only been once, for example. Everybody seems to go... It becomes a really intrinsic part of their yearly calendar and their regimen. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I've written about this as well. Um, so you buy a ticket, and the one thing that Burning Man has capitalized on is experience, the experience economy. People are desperate for connection and desperate for liveness um, and to feel a part of something. And I feel like... Burning Man offers this promise of transformation, of finding community. Of It doesn't always happen, but I think there's this promise that it will happen. Um, and uh, many people have found their lifelong communities out there. I mean, there are incredible communities that, and villages that have, are, have been there for 20 years now or longer. Um, and they keep expanding and new communities keep spawning off and growing and forming and shifting and changing. Um, so, I mean, for me, what I was interested in the event, like what, what drew me into the event, um, if it was just like DJs and a dance party, I would be like, "Mm, not so interesting. Yeah. Um, but in 2001, when I had gone, the lamplighter incident, where I saw, you know, several hundred people clad in these white robes in these doing this ritualistic ceremony. I was like, what is going on here? Like these people are really into it. Like this is not a performance. Like these people mm-hmm. are invested in what they're doing. Um, and then I walked into the temple of tears, which was the first huge temple that David best built at the, at the event. And you walk into this temple that he made out of dinosaur parts and the light filtering through into the space, everyone was silent. People were praying. People were crying. And it became a memorial. And when I walked into that space, I mean, if you've been into any temples in Southeast Asia, Buddhist temples, Hindu temples, it had that same feeling. And I, when I walked into that space, I was like, something else is going on here. It just is not just a party. This is something so much more. Uh, and then I saw a bunch of performances out there that blew my mind. And I, and I was like, what, why are people 
pouring all this time and energy into doing these elaborate performances out here. Can you detail a couple in particular that, that were memorable for you? Um, there are probably too many to even... Well, well, I, I, mean, I, I write about the spectrum of performance at Burning Man from mm-hmm. every person who crosses the threshold into Black Rock City is a performer. There, you are a participant. So just the act of walking across the Palaya is a performative act, and you are part of a performance. Um, and then you have these sort of these events that happen, right? Everyone meet at 2 o'clock dressed in a bunny suit, and we're going to do a pink bunny parade, right? Then there are these sort of happenings that, that occur 20 times a day, right? There's so many you can't even keep track. But then the next level are the groups that go out there, rehearse, for weeks, sometimes months before they come to the playa, to put on a performance on the playa. And so I look at all of that, that whole spectrum of performance. Um, And so some of the groups that I wrote about, um, El Circo was one of my favorite groups. They are from Ashland, Oregon. And um, I I saw their performance Friday night, I think it was 2004, and it it blew me away. It was, they had a dome, it was very, very fire. There was lots of fire and aerial, and it was very sexual and and uh, dark and and just stunning in, in so many ways. Um, and you just don't see that kind of performance anywhere. It would mm. just it's like, but it, but it's not like raunchy. It's 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 beautiful. It's like beautifully erotic and and sensual and fire and um, so authentic. I, and, yeah, and so I ended up interviewing all of them and sort of finding out, like, why are they coming out here? What does this mean to them? Another group I started – so two years I camped with the Red Nose District, which is um, where all the clowns camped because that's fun. <laughs> and they had a, 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 a huge uh, big top, several, you know, many thousands of dollars to put this big top up. Um, and this was Cirque Berserk. And I, uh, so I was camping with them. So all during the week, I would be in the tent with them, watching them rehearse these very, very difficult aerial acts, different acts. Um, while everyone out is outside partying and having fun, these, these performers are working very hard for their Friday night performance that they're going to give for free to the playa. Um, and some of the people that I interviewed are Cirque du Soleil performers, I mean, that's the caliber that they are, but they're choosing to do this for free because, and I said, why are you doing this for free when you could be, you know, working and making money in Cirque du Soleil? They're like, because this audience loves us and this audience really cares. And so for them, it was the most exciting performance of their year to perform for the playa. So interesting, and, and you know, we've already talked about the you know the sort of declining any sort of corporate sponsorship for the event. Do you think that's why it's retained its magic for such a long time? And do you think it's why people have this sort of feeling for it because it isn't morphing into something which is just a cash cow? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's um... perhaps that's even part of the mission. Would you say a sort of antidote to materialism, which is so sharply in focus right now with all the stuff that's going on in the world, and um, and and Burning Man's resisting ideas of notions of materialism. That's a very uh, ambivalent and ambiguous uh, paradoxical space <laughs> for 
um, because, and I write about it a lot, is, so on one hand, you have the gift economy, right? Mm. Um, and if you look at Lewis Hyde, uh, who influenced Larry Harvey a lot thinking about this, um, that a uh, gift is something that you give without the expectation of return. Mm. So if I give you a gift, like for your birthday, I'm like, okay, where's my gift? No, I give you the gift. And then you might give Dee a gift and then she might give someone else a gift. And so he likens uh, gift giving to a river that once you're in the gift giving river, like I might walk down a, the, a, around on the ply and someone gives me a popsicle and then the person just fl- flies off. But yeah. then later I give someone a massage and then someone does this. So it's, it's a all, domino effect. Yeah. So it's not like, oh, if you give me a popsicle, I have to give you uh, a candy cane. No. So, it's nothing I mean, like trading. It's not trading and it's mm. not a barter system. And that's, that's the thing that I think it's misconstrued. It's like, oh, if I give you, if I give you a necklace and you have to give me uh, a cigarette or something. Um, so, and it's the purest form of gift, isn't it? When you expect nothing in return. Yes. Um, and so that, so, so there's that, but then at the same time, and so there's nothing for sale except for ice and coffee. Um, and that gets donated to the local, to, you know, to Empire and Garlock, to the, the schools or charities. Um, but if you go to Walmart or you go to Target two days before Burning Man, it looks like the coronavirus right now. Like there's nothing on the shelves. Um, so BlackRock City cannot exist without capitalism and without mm. tremendous amount of consumer um, spending. I mean, I don't know anyone who can go to Burning Man for less than $1,000. You have to buy water, you have to buy ice, you have to buy food, you have to buy um, duct tape, all wet wipes, whatever it is. Even if you're being the cheapest cheapy, like, it's yeah, still... Yeah, you're surviving out there. And the tickets are like four fifty, five hundred bucks, right? Exactly. And then, and, th- and that's like doing the bare minimum, but, and then there's people who are spending thousands and thousands more to upscale it and to build their camps and to build elaborate sound systems and performance spaces. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the amount of money that is, it takes to build that city, um, is incredible. And, and Burning Man, all they're providing are, is the infrastructure, if Burning Man, like the Burning Man organization itself, had to pay to build those sound stages and wow. those sound systems, they wouldn't be able to do it. Do they do any programming, like in the central yeah. central camp, for example? They don't do any programming of any artist or any performance arts or yeah. anything like that. So, so th- this is another huge difference between this and Lollapalooza or Coachella. Sure. Uh, so those organizations, you know, they sit in a room and they say, okay, we're going to bring in these artists. This stage is going to have this artist and this stage, and they curate the festival, right? And then those artists are paid significant amounts of money to be attend Coachella or whatever. None of the musical acts at Burning Man are curated. None of the DJs are, are curated or paid by Burning Man. Like they may be paid by the theme camps, but they're not paid by Burning Man. Hmm. Um, and they do have at center camp, uh, like an open mic night. And, and, and there are ways where you can sign up to do a performance. Um, but it's more like an open mic night thing. They're not like curating huge acts and huge names. Um, 
the thing that is curated though is the art and Burning Man over the years has become um, one of California's and I would say the U.S.'s largest granting organizations and they give out hundreds of thousands of dollars to artists to build these installations which are competitively selected right uh, so like the temple, for example, it was David Best for many years, but now it, it's kind of a competitive process. And if you get the temple commission, right, you are the architect for the temple. Um, and very, so, so the art is very curated. The installations are. I want to talk, I want to talk about another effect of Burning Man. Um, this is interesting to me because I think that I'm generally quite an inhibited and reserved person. And you seem to me like very uninhibited, unreserved, very comfortable in your skin. Do yeah. you think that because we've talked about participating in Burning Man and all of the stuff that comes with that, do you think that over time Burning Man has made you shed some of your inhibitions? Were you ever as reserved as me going to Burning Man? <laughs> You're not reserved. That's I, they, some people feel more comfortable, you know, I'm, cer- I'm certain that a lot of people felt more comfortable about the idea of, you know, dressing up and performing in some way than, than I did on my first, my first expedition there. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I come from the theatre, so for me, I was like, I found my people. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't really a very big, I, I, I didn't get to Burning Man and I wasn't like, oh no. Where am I? I was like, oh, yay, I'm home. Um, but, but do you think it is a valid point in some way that, you know, that it can have value for you in terms of shedding inhibitions because it is oh, so free? Absolutely. I mean, I have seen some incredible transformations occur out there. Um, and it's quite what I think is quite beautiful about it is that um, people slowly kind of discover like, oh, I'm comfortable doing this or I'm comfortable doing that. Um you know, you can start to see that in the camp, like day one, someone is fully closed. Like by the end of the week, they're like all gold, you know, with like only like a tiny thong on. And um, they're like, Wee! Um, so I think that I, it does provide a space for people to experiment with what um, they're comfortable with. Um I, I actually, you know, I, I'm pretty conservative when it comes to the costuming. I, I sort of found, like, one thing that I'm comfortable in, and I'm like, yep, I'm good with this. Right. I don't feel like I have to dress up like an animal or, you know, some sort of, you know, I don't know. Even even some of the best experiences in life lose their novelty factor over time. Why, then, do people keep going back to Burning Man? Maybe I could just ask you in the micro. Um, well, I'll tell you that I, um, you know, I... Because I've been, I think, seven or eight times over twenty years. Um, the first, so the first time I went, it was just the first time, and I had yes. a good, I had an okay time. I wasn't like I, this is the best thing that ever happened to me. It was, it was interesting enough for me to want to write my dissertation on it. Um, then the next three times I went back, I went as a researcher, so I was okay, really uh, not partying at all. Hmm. Uh, you were drawn in through your vocation. Yeah, I mean, it but was. You were fun. getting the bug. You were getting the bug, whether whether you, whether or not you knew it. Yeah, I mean, I I, um, but I was very like I had interviews all day. You know, I mean, I was working. You know, I would dance in between and do some fun things, but it wasn't like a free for all. I, I was very disciplined. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at, in two thousand and eight, because then I then my book came out, 
um, I was pretty much like, I'm done with Burning Man. I don't really need to go back. Like, I'm, I think I'm done. How many and times had you been at this point? Five? I had been like four. Okay. Yeah, I had been four times, but it was like over a period. Um, and you and felt I, excited I, at that point. And I had just finished my book, and I was like, okay, I'm, you know, I think I got Burning Man out of my system. And then um, there was an article for performance research, and they were doing a, an article on fire. And I was like, oh, man, I have to submit an article for that. Like, that's my research. I, I write about fire. So I uh, – this is like 2012. So I, I wrote the article, but I was like, I have to interview Crimson Rose, and I have to interview people get up-to-date information. I can't just rely on my information from 2008. So I called up Crimson Rose and had a long conversation with her about fire because she's like the fire czar of of uh, Burning Man. She coordinates all the fire conclave, the, the burn of the man, like anything fire related is like she's the fire goddess. She's like the one who is in charge of it all. Wow. So I had a great conversation with her. And at the end of the conversation, she's like, um, do you want two tickets for the burn this year? And I was like, oh, OK. What are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, I, I was I was totally caught off guard by that because um, I had no plans on returning, and um, I thought I was like, oh, that wow, yes, thank you, okay. Um, and then my um, I the, the Richard Schechner, who's my dissertation director, he was like, um, I've always wanted to go to Burning Man. He's eighty, right? He's like, I've been dying to go to Burning Man at some time, right? So when I got the email from Crimson, I wrote him an email. I said, so I have two free tickets for Burning Man. This might be the, the time. If you want to come, I have a ticket for you. He's like, oh, okay, I'll get back to you. And three days later, he's like, I'm in. We're going. <laughs> I went with him. He's like 84 years old. Wow. Um, he was my, my date, my 84-year-old date. He was awesome, though. He, I mean, he, he is like this 1960s, 1970s happenings, right? That's his life. Mm -hmm. So for him to experience Burning Man was like a dream come true. It would be like Salvador Dali going to Burning Man and being like, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so that was pretty fun. Um, and that year um, uh, was interesting. Because, and, oh, and so I camped with Nem Katakoa, who were these acro stilters from Colombia, and Carpetbag Brigade, who are my friends, who are acrostilters here from Arizona. What's an acrostilter? I get the second part of the term. They are on stilts, and they do acrobatics on stilts, like ah, flip okay. and stuff cool. on stilts. It's mm -hmm. unbelievable, like wow. super beautiful stuff. So I camped with them, and then actually this is my most powerful moment I've ever had at Burning Man. Um, Pepe Ozan, who was one of the main artists of Burning Man, who was one of the first people to start building these really large sculptures there. This is long before, again, this is long before the arts commissions. This is just when artists were like, I'm building art out here. I'm going to build big art out here. Um, so he was one of the very first. Um, that year he committed suicide. Um, so there was a, on Wednesday night, there was a big tribute to him. And I had connected with um, a group of people who were putting on the big memorial for him. And the idea was to wear all white and to meet around the man at sunset and then to process from the man to the temple. And so 
I wore my vessel, like the all white that I have. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Anastasia was bad uncle sister from, she's a Buto group from uh, San Francisco was leading it. So we did this ritual around the man. And then we did this slow motion kind of crawling, heaving, moving of thing all the way to the temple. Uh, it took about three hours. <laughs> Had several hundred people. We, we maybe there was like sixty or seventy of us performing, but then there was several hundred people just following us wow. to the temple with hundreds of photographers. Uh, we got into Rolling Stone magazine from that event, um, but uh, it was unbelievable. I was completely sober, like n- completely sober, and I had an out of body experience. I was, I was, I have never f- experienced anything like that before. What um, was what made it an out of body experience? How did how was that feeling generated? Was it just the camaraderie, the bonhomie yeah, between people? I, I mean, you're literally like on the ground with the playa dust, and you look up at the sky, and it's like this brilliant blue sky, and then the sweat of the other people, and we were like heaving like this one amoeba. And when we got into the temple, we were all just like <sighs> breathing together, um, and it was just so powerful. Even Richard, who has written about performance and ritual his whole life, was like, I've never seen anything like that before. Like, that was insane. Maybe that's, uh, the, maybe that's the feeling of Burning Man distilled into one event. You know, the idea, yeah. if you boil it down, is of connectivity and togetherness. Yeah. No, I mean, after that event, I was like, I don't know if I'm done with Burning Man. Like, that was the most powerful thing I've ever experienced. Wow. Um, and it was actually a really a funny story. Um, because for my book and my articles, I've been working with this photographer, Scott London, who is a Rolling Stone photographer. He goes out there to shoot for Rolling Stone. Um, but he's been lending me his photos for years uh, for my book. Hmm. And so I had a plan to meet at center camp at some point, like around between nine and 10 for coffee. Um, but we never connected. And I remember going to, I kept going to the center camp to meet him. And I was like, you know what? I don't remember what I, I forgot to ask what he looks like. I have no idea what I'm looking for. I was just looking for someone with a big camera. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. And then during the performance, I noticed someone kept zooming in on me. Like someone kept photographing me. Um, and then a week after Burning Man, my friend says, you know, that you're featured three times in Rolling Stone. Right. And I was like, what? Wow. And I looked under and it said Scott London. And I was like, no way. So I emailed Scott and I said, I think you found me. He's like, that was you? <laughs> Bizarre. He was like, in the group of 50 people performing, you were the only one who drew my eye. And I was mesmerized by your like aesthetic. And I was like, wow. And so anyway, we became, we were, we're good friends now. And we ended up doing it. This collaboration that you see here is came out of that. Because he's like, I really want to work with you on a project. Um, no, so, so, so then, then I was like, okay, I, that really changed my, my idea of like that community and that, that's, that space of transformation was the first time I experienced that at Burning Man. That's what I want to experience at Burning Man. Yeah. Cause I had not up until then ex- had that experience. It had been very academic. It had been more, uh, you know, uh, analytical Impre- and then impressive, but not as immersive maybe as you'd have liked. Uh, Oh, I mean, I wasn't like, I mean, after this, after that performance, I was like, where was I? What happened? Like, oh my gosh, like, what was that? Um, it was so powerful. Um, and right. And so then I was sort of like, this is 2013. And I'm like, you know what? Okay. I'm kind of done. And I kind of put it aside. 
And then, dun-dun-dun, I meet Scott. (laughs) (laughs) The inimitable Scott. (laughs) And, um... You know, our first conversation is like, I've been, I've been going since 93. I was like, I wrote a book on Burning Man. He's like, okay, you win. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go back to Burning Man. He's like, oh, you're going back to Burning Man. I'm like, yeah, I'm really, I think I'm done. He's like, oh, you're not done. (laughs) (laughs) He wouldn't let you be done. And I was like, damn you. (laughs) But then it ended up going with Scott was actually incredible because Mm. we have the we have such a similar sort of um, way of moving through Burning Man. And so for the first time with him, I felt like I experienced the Burning Man I always wanted to experience. Wow. Yeah. And and so, and so the last two years that I've gone with him, I've fallen in love, back in love with Burning Man um, because it's for me, I'm, it's not so, it's not so much about the research as it is about sort of understanding how the communities are working together and, and really understanding, uh, these spaces of transformation. And I'm still writing about it. That's the thing. Like I thought I was done in 2008, but then I was invited to go to Berlin to write the catalog essay for this huge exhibit in Berlin and give a talk keynote speech at this art house in Berlin. And I was like, I did that in January, and I was like, I guess I'm not done. Um, Fantastic. It keeps pulling you back in. It is. It's like a thing that just will not let me go now. And so I, I've sort of conceded to the fact that Burning Man is my life, and, and I love it. And it, 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 it really, uh, especially the last two years, really contributed to recharging my batteries and realizing I need that in my life. I was just going to ask you what Burning Man has taught you through all of your years of, of attending. Um, that you need I, it to recharge. It actually, it, you, you find it, it rejuvenates you well, rather well, than well, draining you out in the desert, surviving well, for a well, week. Well, one of the things I realized um, all my life, I've loved dancing. It's been a huge part of my life. And then, you know, once I went to grad school, it kind of just dwindled out completely. And I feel like, especially the last two years, I've done a lot of dancing out there. Um, and I realize that charges my soul and that I real and so what I what what's changed is that now when I'm back in Phoenix I seek out opportunities where I can go dancing and where I can find the community that I have at Burning Man and so I've become very close to the Walter community here in Phoenix mm-hmm. because they provide that space where I can feel free and in my body um yeah and it's also, it's sort of just like a mindset. I'm part of this group on Facebook. Are you, I don't know if you're a part of it, but let's all pretend we're at Burning Man. That's happened ever since the coronavirus. Okay, no, I don't, I'm not on Facebook. Okay, but it's hilarious. I mean, I just find the mindset of a lot of burners is just, it's just hilarious. They're and, some of the nicest people you'll ever meet, really, aren't they? But it's also irreverent and just, I just appreciate that. Yeah. And and I, I just that's become such a big part of my life now. And and I just feel like it's a shorthand. Like if I meet someone who's been to Burning Man, there's just like this understanding, this this common thing that we just are sort of like, yep. 
And it is, it's hard to put your finger on, but I think, you know, part of it, it is quite existential because you go out there and it's so important to all of these people and it makes you question your understanding of existence and what is important, you know, is the rat race, is that the important thing, is that the most relevant thing, you know, earning a crust, earning money, having all this stuff, or is it actually more important to connect with people, the dying art of connection, you know, in the middle of nowhere? No, for me, like, for me, that is the most important important thing is is finding that community and finding that just feeling alive and and having those peak experiences. Um, And and I think that that is why so many celebrities are now drawn to Burning Man because they want something authentic too. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was dancing one foot away from Paris Hilton on the Robot Heart bus this year. (laughs) And she looked just like a burner, you know, she had her, her little dreadlock colored braids and her big, you know, Gucci glasses and her skin, your body, silver body skin suit, probably designed by Dolce and Gabbana. Mm. She looks just like a burner, right? Mm. But what's so fascinating, I'm so curious about like burner fashion, how burner fashion evolved out of people who were true artists slash subversive countercultural um, um, influencers before the term even showed up. Mm-hmm. And now all of these celebrity influencers are coming in and copying that style. Right. Um, of sort of what it means to be like desert chic or like Mad Max aesthetic chic. Uh, it's pretty fascinating. It's what now- happens with all fashion, doesn't it? It comes from the yeah. peripheries and becomes mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing, another element that we haven't discussed is the whole idea of leave no trace. And again, it seems so relevant in, the, you know, our current circumstances, this crisis affecting the world, that yeah. it's all being caused by our wastefulness, our wastefulness of resources. And, and it's, again, it's a beautiful part of the movement, isn't it? The real dedication to leaving no trace at this uh, event. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the 10 principles can, are really relevant right now with the coronavirus, you know, radical self-expression. Uh, radical self-reliance, uh, leave no trace. Uh, that being said, again, that's a complicated thing. Leave no trace in the desert, but then as soon as you drive out, dump all your trash on the reservation. Mm. Um, so the trash has to go somewhere. Yeah. It doesn't go nowhere. It doesn't get left in the desert. Um, and I guess it, it does help to um, build into sort of like, oh, clean up after yourself. Um, but it's still problematic. I mean, I don't think it's, 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 it's a great concept, but it's not as. <laughs> it's a really good point when you think beyond actually, you know, apart from just picking out the rubbish, then it's got to go somewhere. It's got to end up somewhere. It all goes somewhere. I mean, and, and that's actually one of the things that I'm interested in looking at now are the, what, what I'm calling the economies of Burning Man. So while Burning Man itself you buy the ticket and the only money exchanged is coffee and ice. There are satellite economies all around Burning Man that are essential to its functioning. For example, you can rent a bike and 40,000 of bikes get abandoned every year that they get shipped over to Reno and then they're rented back to burners the following year. And that's like a whole economy. Mm -hmm. Um, Now in Gerlach and Empire, when you drive through, there's a whole bazaar of um, a market 
selling clothing and where uh, we stopped last year on route exactly like that did not exist in 2001 2004 2008 that is like the last five years mm-hmm. um again but that's what would be at burning man if it wasn't prevented from being at burning man right yep. um but it's popping up around burning man like buy your last minute cool outfit before you go to burning man like get your last minute you know thing and I mean, the prices are, are outrageous. I mean, it's like $95 for a pair of like pants. Ridiculous. Um, Absolutely crazy. Um, and then you have what's fascinating to me is like, where do all the art car go? Where do they all go? Because you can't afford to store them in Oakland and San Francisco. It's too expensive. So half of Reno and Nevada becomes a storage unit for Burning Man art cars. And people are making a lot of money storing art cars during the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was one guy I met um, who, who who was a person taking the trash. He uh, he he's on the reservation and he rents his space for people to park their art cars on his property all year long. And then he drives the art car out to the playa for them. So when they arrive, their art cars waiting for them. Wow. Yeah. I suppose as long as it's done in a sustainable way, then it's sort of okay, but it also smacks of the irresistible charge of capitalism, doesn't it? I mean, have you seen how many RVs are out there? Mm. RVs aren't cheap. Yeah, it's crazy. And they're gas guzzlers. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, and, and there's been a lot of tension around that topic of sort of the tension between commerce free and the reality of what it takes. And this is why I say it's on the edge of utopia because Burning Man is not sustainable um, in the desert. I mean, the concepts and the theories are uh, the lifestyle is sustainable, but not the actual event itself. Right. It's very finite. It's very temporal. Do you like the fact that it's out in the desert or would you rather it was somewhere else? Ideally, Somewhere no, a bit more lush. I think, no, I think it has to be in the desert. The desert is such an epic landscape. I don't think that could happen anywhere else. Mm. And also you have to prepare and plan so much more meticulously, don't you, when you're going out somewhere like there, because you're going to survive uh, apart from anything else. Right. Although this this all comes into, like, the whole plug-and-play camps, right, and how people right. aren't at all. They come and they have their 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 entire space is set up for them. They have a four season chef, they have showers, they have a whole, you know, Bedouin tent is put up for them. So I, and that's the tension that's happening, right? Yeah. It's changing massively, as you say, from, from the, the con, the original concept and how, you know, off the grid and how authentic it was in the first instance. I was watching a show last night called tales of the city, which is apparently quite famous in America. Do you know tales of the city? No. Basically, it's just a description of San Francisco in the 70s. Burning Man could not exist if it hadn't come out of the Bay Area, San Francisco. Like, they, all of the communities that, that Scott has actually talked about mm. really become the fabric for what happens out there because of the communities that have been built in the Bay. Um so it's very interconnected, th- those those uh, realities. Yeah. Um, uh, what, but sorry, that's, that's why that's why uh, Marion Godal, who's now the CEO of Burning Man, uh, sent an email to the community this year called "Cultural," uh, you know, redirecting cultural setting, because 
they had to kind of put a stop to this influencer culture that was going out to Burning Man right. and using basically Burning Man as a backdrop for whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, like these photo shoots and, uh, you know, having these, these plug and play camps and they're sort of, and, and for the first time in the history of Burning Man, they, they told a camp, they cannot camp there. Um, you know, and they're being a lot more strict about that. Is there something about, is there an edict about photography as well in general at Burning Man? Do I, yeah. I, I, I mean, you're, you're supposed to have a media pass to do like a photo shoot. I mean, if you just want to take personal photos for you, that's fine. But mm. if you want to do like a photo shoot, uh, you need a, a media pass. Th- this summer, I mean, this last year, we went to a camp and we just happened to start talking to the owner of the camp. This is one of, of one of the biggest plug and play camps at Burning Man. And we just started chatting because um, we noticed we're like, wow, this camp is really uh, very well set up, you know. Uh, and we started chatting and this guy um, turns out that it's $40,000 a year to camp there. Oh, my God. And he was he was rattling off all the celebrities that were staying there and sort of all of the, the things they, they get. Like, he didn't know that I was a researcher. Mm. And I was like, oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was giving me all the scoop. I'm like, you should probably stop talking right now. because. <laughs> so let, let me just clarify, it's 40000 per person. Correct. Wow. What do you get for that? Did you find out about the actual details? <laughs> yeah, well, so a team of people come out uh, a week or two beforehand who are paid mm. to set up the whole camp. Um, you get a, you have a choice between like a fully, fully, uh, sort of fleshed out RV, um, or you have like a Bedouin tent set up for you, but each person gets their own private shower, their own private bath. Um, there's an open bar 24 seven and only for campers, but in the back is a, is a full kitchen that any time of day you can go in and say, like, I want to choose burger with fries. I want a sushi with uh, miso soup. Uh, How does that make you feel? It makes me feel like um, those people are spoiled brats. <laughs> and, oh, and, and they have like a costume tent where they come in and there's like designers there designing their playa oh out. Oh, my God. It they doesn't go feel like they... it's in the spirit of it, really, does it? No, not at all. That's the whole problem. Hmm. Because these people – oh, and, and, oh, and they're – I also met an airline pilot, no, who worked at the airport. So these people fly into the airport. There's a little golf cart waiting for them to drive them to their camp. And they basically don't, everything is set up for them. Mm-hmm. Um, they never smell bad for the whole week. Yeah. That's so just wrong. So, so, so when you see pictures of these people who are like gorgeous and dust free, you're like, <laughs> we know where you're camping. <laughs> So true. What's the strangest thing you've seen at Burning Man? The the most weird or wonderful thing you've seen? Weird or wonderful? Oh my god. There's so much. For me the most amazing thing is sunrise at Burning Man. Mm. When the sun just comes up and there's just this golden light over the playa and you see the different art installations around and you see silhouettes of people walking and it's just the most magical time of the day. And 
it's just breathtaking. It just cannot even like put your finger on it. And then you see people skydiving in onto the playa. It's just magical. And then you see, you know, robot heart off in the distance and mind warrior off in the distance. And it's just um, breathtaking. Amazing. The participants of Burning Man and the organizers of Burning Man probably wouldn't thank us for doing any kind of promotion for it. But why, why why should discerning people go to Burning Man? Oh, I mean, it's not for everyone. It really isn't. You know, I mean, you really have to, um, unless you're part of these plug-and-play camps, which I would say, like, why are you going to Burning Man if you're doing that? But um, it's it's an amazing experience. Um, but there's 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 really a lot of ways to do it right and a, a lot of ways to do it wrong. <laughs> so, As you've learned. Yeah. I mean, the first two, three couple years that I camped, I camped with costume cult in a tent and we had a Bunsen burner. And so I would make ramen noodles in a dust storm as I'm holding my sarong so that the dust into my ramen noodles. Um, And then I upgraded to the next year where we had a, a kitchen tent, but that basically entailed, you can use your Bunsen burner inside a tent. And it's still ramen noodles. Um, <laughs> the uh, sand pervades everything, doesn't it, in Burning yeah. Man? No, it's playa dust. It's just not, it's not even sand. It's like right. a, it's powder. Mm. Um, so I would say camping at Camp Contact the last two years has been pure bliss and luxury. Well, yeah. And I Gerald checked it out a few times. It looks amazing. Yeah, I mean, he has it done so well. Uh, and that's really the way to go. I think um, it's really important to go with a camp if you can. Absolutely, because infrastructure is key, you know, I mean, and we had our tent under another like that big, large, larger tent. So that that keeps your tent from being blown away, but also from getting too hot. Um, And then you help out and you do shifts, but it's not all on you. So you don't have to plan seven meals, you know, three times a day. And you just sort of show up and you do your shifts, but then the other times other people are doing the shifts. And so it just feels so much more communal. Um, it's just a thousand times better. It sounds like you're really whetting my appetite so much. I'm like, I'm fingering through the, the calendar to see when it's going to be possible to go to Burning Man again. It's not happening this year, I assume. No, it's been cancelled. Mm. Do you think that we will change our ways in the advent of coronavirus? Or do you think it will be business as usual? Everybody forget about it in a few months and just get back to the progress inverted commas i don't know i don't have much hope you know because i'm just seeing what's happening here in phoenix and everyone because we're basically reopened right and um when you go out on the you know into target or someplace like 20 20 percent are wearing masks no one's really uh, it's basically if you're a Democrat, you're wearing a mask. If you're a Republican, you're not. And you <laughs> the Republican uh, Democratic hoax. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just don't have much faith in humanity. I feel like people are just dying to go back to their shopping and their 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 old ways. Um, my brother was just in Sedona this weekend, and he said it was packed with people from Phoenix, no one wearing a mask. So. No. I mean, I think there are going to be some people who this will have changed and will have affected. But I think that I I really don't. It's kind of grim and sad, but 
when it's I so see true. And, and, and you seem to me to have a very sort of optimistic disposition in general. I'm a real optimist, but I, I share your, your opinions about it. I really do. I'm, I'm genuinely concerned about the future of humanity. Yeah, I don't think that... I think people are just so caught up in their, um, you know, in, you know, I need everything now culture. I mean, this is the, the coronavirus has turned Jeff Bezos into a trillionaire because people are just transferring all their shopping onto Amazon now. Yeah. So he gave, uh, he gave 100 million away, right, for, for a bit of positive PR. But again, like the most powerful people in the world don't seem motivated to do anything about this to really shift the paradigm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, it, it's it's uh, I mean, there, things are going to be different because so many people lost their jobs, have been laid off. I, I feel very fortunate working at the university that I, I was protected by that. Mm-hmm. But um, I know many, many friends who who are really struggling right now. Wow. So I, don't, I don't know yeah. what it's going to be like for them to go back, you know. It's a depressing scene. I don't want to leave you on a, a sour note, so I'm going to okay. ask you finally. Um, tell me somebody that inspires you and why. Something that inspires me. Um, my daughter inspires me. She's Thanks. very creative. And um, theater inspires me. And, and the arts and just knowing that even though the live theater is being currently sort of shut down we're having to towards the virtual i i'm confident that theater will resurge itself in some form i don't know how i, I don't know what the reintegration of liveness is going to look like but i know we're going to figure it out we'll get there in the end exactly <sighs> the natural high